49 to 42. Mark writes, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he was made clean. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. (coughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you praise. And we give you thanks for this day. Lord God, we give you thanks, Father, for calling us out of our beds and into the gathered worship with your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord God, we thank you as Katie just read from Psalm 147, Lord, that you prepare rain and you make the grass grow on the hills. Lord, we thank you, Father, for the beauty of your creation, Lord, that speaks to your glory. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the worship that we have participated in so far today. Lord, we pray, God, that as we continue to worship you this morning, Lord, as we hear your word proclaimed, as we come to the table, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Then we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by issuing an apology, an actual apology, not a defense. Last week, I forced a Lord of the Rings reference on you all without warning you. But that's not why I'm apologizing. I'm apologizing because I'm going to do it again. (laughs) Now, let's be honest. This probably happens more often than it should in a sermon setting, but it doesn't happen as often as it could. So, if you're going to be thankful for anything related to the Lord of the Rings and my sermons, you can be thankful that I don't do it every single week, because I really could. But, there's a moment. Now, for those that have read the novels, are going to get this a lot more than those who have simply watched the movies. But I'm going to explain it for everyone. Because there is a moment in the third novel, The Return of the King, that I think speaks really well to this text for today. This chapter in The Return of the King is called The Houses of Healing. So for those that have read the novels, you might already be getting where I'm going. In this chapter, this chapter takes place after a great battle has been fought to save the city of Minas Tirith. Now in the movies, this is a very high emotional moment. Rohan shows up 
right at sunrise, and the city is under siege, it's on fire. And King Theoden screams, death to the red dawn. It's so beautiful. I get chills every time I, I watch the scene. But I watched it this week. It was wonderful. But Minas Tirith has been under the onslaught of the enemy for days. The city's on fire. And during that battle, as many do in battle, a lot of people died. But a few of the well-known characters were very seriously injured. So they are taken to the houses of healing or to the hospital. Right? And some of their injuries are of a very evil nature because of who they fought in the battle. And they are of, shall we say, a demonic nature because of who they fought in the battle. And the healers, the doctors, are just at a loss for how to care for them. Their medicine isn't cutting it. And it's at this moment, standing in the doorway of the houses of healing, seeing these characters that we have come to know and love through the last couple of books, Gandalf the White, Gandalf the Wizard, looks at them and he says, it's only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in the house. And he says, as the wise woman of Gondor once spoke, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be known. Last week, in the section before this one in Mark's gospel, we saw Jesus revealed to us as the Christ by his authority. Particularly his authority over the demonic powers and his authoritative teaching. Our text for today continues to reveal Jesus as the Christ to us by his authority. But, as you no doubt noticed through this simple read-through, Mark has now added yet another element into the mix. So Jesus is revealed to us as the Christ by his authority, by his authoritative teaching, by his authority over the demons, over the powers and principalities. But now, he's revealed to us by his authority to heal and to cleanse. Again, to quote the wise woman of Gondor, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And by his healing hands shall the rightful king be known. I want us to approach this text in Mark 1 as a simple word study. So as we look at this text, I want to focus our attention on three Greek words. I will tell, them how you, how you, I will tell you how you can spell them later, and I will also give you the definition later, but I want to read the Greek words to you now. I'm probably going to mispronounce some, so for those in the room that know Greek a little better than I do, can make fun of me afterwards. All right. So these three Greek words are therapuo, katharos, and sozo. All right, these are the Greek words we're going to look at. But here's the kicker. In Mark chapter 1, the word sozo is not present. But it does inform this text. All right, so before we start to unpack those three words and what they mean, I want to turn our attention to the center section of our text because it sets the context for this entire understanding of this passage. And it's verses 35 to 39, which begins with, and rising very early. You'll see it there in the center of that big paragraph in your bulletin. Again, Mark writes, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Again, this section really helps set the context for this study. Mark begins this section by using four verbs. He uses the words rising, departed, went, and prayed. 
And he uses these words to describe Jesus' regular habit of cultivating and maintaining a close fellowship with the Father by retreating to a desolate place in order to pray. In Scripture, the term desolate place, and it may be different in a Bible you might have open in front of you, the term desolate place can also be translated as the desert or even as the wilderness. Biblically, the desert is known as a place of preparation, but also a place of purification, of testing, and even temptation. The purpose of the desert or the wilderness is to encounter God more fully. Now, we see examples of this throughout all of Scripture. Right? The people of Israel wandered the desert for 40 years. Elijah sojourned in the desert as he traveled to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, as he also fled from the wrath of Jezebel. John the Baptist appeared, as you, if you were to skip over in Mark chapter 1 to verse 4, John the Baptist appears baptizing in the wilderness. Our Lord himself fasts and is tempted in the desert in the wilderness for 40, year, 40 days, excuse me, not 40 years, 40 days. And while we are still in the season of Epiphany, we are closing in on the season of Lent. Right? This text starts to transition us now from Epiphany toward Lent. And Lent is the time where we get to join Christ in the wilderness. There in the wilderness, fasting with Christ, fasting from distraction, fasting from whatever regular comfort of life that we choose to fast from, like Jesus, like John, like Elijah, and even like ancient Israel, we place ourselves in a posture to hear from God and to be used by God. The wilderness of Lent affords us the opportunity to make ourselves available to God and to encounter God more fully. And in this passage, Jesus gives us a very beautiful example because he slips off to the wilderness. He sneaks away to the wilderness where he can encounter God and where he can retreat and rest and prepare for the ministry that is ahead. But you'll notice in this section, sandwiched between these events of healing and casting out demons, Mark has placed Jesus' ministry once again front and center. Like last week in Mark 127, we saw that it was through Jesus' authoritative teaching that his authority over the demonic powers was confirmed. Again, after casting out that demon, those in the synagogue on that day, Mark writes this in verse 27, he says, They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So what Mark is doing here, in verses 35 to 39, is showing us that Jesus' authoritative teaching is also what confirms his authority to heal and to cleanse. Our Orthodox friends write here, and they note that Jesus' primary mission was to preach the kingdom of God. Miracles and healings testify both to the truth of his message but also to his identity. Again, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and by his healing hands shall the rightful king be known. Now we can picture this scene, right? If you're reading this passage, just making your way through Mark, you get to this scene, and you can, you can start to mentally picture it. Jesus, in the section before this, which is part of our text this morning, he has spent the better part of the evening healing those with various diseases and casting out more demons. And so now it's the next morning and the disciples wake up and Jesus is nowhere to be found, right? 
because he had risen very early in the morning, probably before sunrise, to go off to a desolate place to pray. But they wake up and he's gone, and the crowds are still gathering, they're still pressing in. And so they go looking for him, right? They've got to bring him back. There's still people here that are sick, there's still people here that are demon-possessed. He needs to work on them, he needs to heal them. And so when they finally find him, they say, everyone is looking for you. Right? Now, to translate it into a better understanding for us, they would have, you could imagine it as something like this. Jesus, more people have showed up. Why did you sneak off? Right? More people are here. But Jesus responds. He responds by pointing to the primary activity that Mark wants us to see of Jesus' ministry. To proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of God. He says, again, let us go on to the next towns so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The healings and the exorcisms, while very good work, serve to confirm that the presence and the authority of the kingdom of God have finally arrived. And so then, with his authoritative teaching once again put in front of our eyes, we can now see how his authoritative teaching helps us to make sense of those three Greek words that I gave you earlier. Let me give them to you again. If you're a note taker and you want to write them down, I will spell them for you. Now these are the, the perfect writings of these, right? This isn't the examples of like past tense or, or verb-wise. It's just the, the plain old word, right? So the first word is therapuo. T-H-E-R-A-P-E-U-O. Therapuo. This is the Greek word for heal or healed. This is also where we get our word, therapeutic, right? which means similar thing. I looked it up in a, def in a dictionary just to make sure. <laughs> but this is where we get our word, therapeutic, therapuo. It means heal or healed in the Greek. The second word is the word katharos, K-A-T-H-A-R-O-S, katharos. Katharos is the Greek word for clean or cleanse or even purify. This is where we get our word catharsis, if I'm not mistaken. The final word, again, is the word sozo, S-O-Z-O, which, if you'll remember, isn't in this text, but it does inform the text. I have a reason for adding it. Sozo is the Greek word for salvation. But sozo can also mean healed. So in the Gospels, this is why I want to do a three-word a three study at looking at this text. In the Gospels, when we read that Jesus saves someone, and then we go to another point in the Gospels and we read that he heals someone, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, that is the exact same Greek word, the word sozo. And so I have readily admitted right, that this is not the case here in Mark 1. Therapuo and katharos are here in Mark chapter 1, not sozo. But what we do regularly see in Scripture is that salvation and healing are virtually identical. Now let me give you some biblical examples throughout Scripture in case you don't believe me. All right, first, in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, we read a section as the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, and they have sinned against God and against Moses. And fiery serpents show up and start to bite them so that many die. Let me read this to you. 
From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, as we are wont to do. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They loathe the manna of God. They're tired of it. Their palate is extended as far as it can go. Quail isn't even helping it at this point. And then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And when the people of Israel came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus uses this exact same scene in his meeting with Nicodemus. He says this, And just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This morning, in Sunday school, we read Isaiah 57. And this came to me as we were finishing the chapter this, uh, this morning, and I was talking to Connor about this before worship started. We read in two places. Particularly, I'm going to read verse 19. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. There's another section. In Mark chapter 5, verse 34, Jesus tells the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage, your faith has healed you. She reaches out and touches his garment. If I could just touch the fringe on his garment. Doctors can't, be, can't help me. Nothing can help me. If I touch his garment, I will be healed. Woman, your faith has healed you. Some translations, if you've got your Bibles open, some translations might even read this. Your faith has saved you. Similar word, the word sozo. Let's backtrack just for the sake of argument. Backtrack to last week. Mark 21 to 20, 28. This demon-possessed man that we saw. If you have an ESV, and other translations may put in headings this way, but the ESV gives that section this heading. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. So let's ask a question, right, with these three Greek words in mind. Therapuo, katharos, and sozo. Did Jesus save that man, or did he merely cast out a demon? I think if you were to ask that poor man, not to mention looking at this scene with a comprehensive biblical view of salvation, Jesus, the Christ, saved him. He saved him from a life and an eternity of defilement because of his demon possession. But one more place, just in case you're not on board with me yet, if you're sitting there rolling your eyes and saying, no, Nick, I don't, I don't believe that healing and salvation are identical in Scripture, let me give you one more place. If you've got your Bibles, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're just going to go to one section beyond what we're looking at today. 
And I want to read a little story about Jesus healing a man that is paralyzed. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Mark writes this. And this, this scene is in both Matthew and Luke as well. But Mark writes this. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Again, that primary activity of proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe the gospel. Right? He was preaching at the door, preaching to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. And when they had made the opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, it's at this point, a lot of times, we've probably all heard sermons. And not that there's anything wrong with these sermons, but it's usually at this point where the focus is put. Look at what his friends did for him. <laughs> like, they did whatever it took to get him to Jesus. Amen? And amen, right? But, let's not finish. Continue on. Look what happens. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Hang on a minute. What? <laughs> and what the Pharisees are thinking and the scribes are thinking, the crowds are thinking, because the scribes are sitting there and they question their hearts, they're thinking in the, to themselves, why does he speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to this paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or rise and take up your bed and walk? That's a valid question, right? I mean, let's be honest. If a man is brought in and is a paralytic, we would say, in Christ your sins are forgiven. That's way easier than saying, get up and go home. So Jesus says this, but, scribes, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Turning to the paralytic, he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out from before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Again, biblically, healing and cleansing are oftentimes virtually identical with salvation. Now let's consider these examples in our text that's in our bulletins for today. Peter's mother-in-law, the many, and this leper. That was a big setup, but I promise it will be worth it. If you'll recall, we spent a few weeks, a few moments last week, excuse me, considering the principle of defilement. We've mentioned it again already today. Particularly as it relates to demons. Demons are defiled. They are unclean. This is why in the section last week, and even here in the final verse of verse 34, that first part of the section this week, Jesus will not allow them to speak. He will not allow them to speak because they know him. They are able to identify him. As we noted last week, the only way that Christ is revealed to us is by God. This is a revelation of God, not by demons and not by men. This is why, God, why Christ keeps their mouths shut. They have defiled mouths. They are unworthy to reveal the Christ. The demon in our text last week that was defiling that man, it brought defilement into the synagogue. It brought defilement into the very presence of Jesus the Christ, God incarnate. And similarly, today, our entire text is also informed by that defilement principle. Notice in this first section, 
verses 32 to 34 in particular, that the people bring their sick and their oppressed to Jesus at sundown. Verse 32 says, That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. The Jewish day began at sunset. Meaning, in the section before this one, and even Jesus' healing of Peter's mother-in-law, all of this takes place on the Sabbath. But now, at sunset, the Sabbath is over. And now that the Sabbath is over, people can now bring the sick to him. They can bring the demon-possessed to him without violating Sabbath commands of work, but also without possibly defiling the Sabbath in some way. But defilement can occur through another means, especially as we see here in this text. And that means is touch. You can touch something defiled and become defiled. This is what the Mosaic Law tells us regarding defilement. To touch something unclean defiles you ritualistically. Touching blood, touching a dead body, touching persons with certain illnesses or diseases causes defilement that required you to purify yourself, to cleanse yourself, to catharose yourself. So notice the one difference between the healing of the man with the demon last week, similarly with the healing of those who have demons this week. The difference between them and the healing of the sick that take place in this text today. Jesus touches them all. Again, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And by his healing hands shall the rightful king be known. His healing and cleansing touch confirms his identity as the Christ. But it also reveals his authority to save. For over a year now, we have been making our way through Isaiah in Sunday school. We were there again this morning. I referenced it a moment ago. But there's one passage we looked at a few weeks ago that I'm reminded of as we look at this text in Mark 1. It's Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53 read this way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we, has, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. The New American Standard translation of the Old Testament, and I know a few folks in the room have this translation, Verse 4 reads this way. It was our sicknesses that he bore and our pains that he carried. Jesus is fulfilling this every time he touches and heals someone. The New Revised Standard, as well as the Dewey Reims, which is the English translation of the Latin Vulgate, both read this way. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. In the ancient world, a fever, like what Peter's mother-in-law is afflicted with here, was considered to be a disease itself, not a symptom of a disease. Now, we know this now, right? When somebody has a fever, we know they are sick with something because that's the body's way of fighting back against some type of viral infection or whatever it might be. Right? But in the ancient world, that, they didn't understand that. Right? So a fever itself, as fevers can be, depending on somebody's healthy health condition, a fever can be deadly. A fever was a disease. And Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. He 
therapuos her by taking her hand, by touching her, and lifting her out of bed. Leprosy was a catch-all term for a lot of different skin diseases. And a leper, according to Jewish law, is ceremonially defiled and completely ostracized from the community, just as if they were demon-possessed. The act of touching a leper is completely forbidden by the law because not, it not only makes a person that touches a leper ceremonially unclean, but it also leaves them exposed to catching the condition themselves. If you thought social distancing was an issue during COVID-19, it's nothing compared to how the ancient world saw a leper. And Jesus, we read here, moved with absolute pity stretches out his hand and touches the leper and says, be cleansed, be purified, be catharos. Church Father Origen writes here, and he asks a very valid question. He says, why did Jesus touch the leper since the law forbade it? We know Jesus never violated the law, so why did he touch the leper? He says, Jesus touches the leper in his untouchability. And by stretching forth his hand to touch him, the leprosy immediately departs. He said, the hand of the Lord is found to have touched not a leper, but a body made clean. Or rather, a body now completely purified. A body that has been saved. Chrysostom asks a similar question. He says, Jesus does not simply say, I will be cleansed, but he also touches the leper. If Jesus, Jesus had cleansed him by merely willing it and then speaking it, then why did he also add the touch of his hand? He touched the leper to signify that he heals not as a servant, but as Lord. For the leprosy did not defile his hand, but his holy hand cleansed the leprous body. His holy hand saved the leper. So then notice, notice then in, the, in our text, the immediate results of what happens when Jesus, when Jesus touches with salvific healing. For Peter's mother-in-law, we see this. The fever left her. She was healed. And she began to serve him. A lot of people read that phrase and they get really frustrated. Why is this poor sick woman now starting to serve men? <laughs> Anyone that takes it that direction does not understand how to read anything. The great, there's, and the reason being is that there's a very particular Greek word that Mark uses to write that phrase. He uses the word diakonos, which is where we get our term deacon in the church. So by illustrating her serving here, Mark is not demeaning her. Jesus is not demeaning her by allowing her to serve him. Rather, Mark is showing us that Jesus' work of healing is both immediate and complete to the purpose that she gets up out of her sickbed and she begins to serve Christ. When our sins are healed, our response is to serve Christ immediately. With the leper, we read this. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. He was purified. And like Peter's mother-in-law, notice what this former leper does. If you look a little lower in that section that's not in our bulletins, Jesus says this. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, sorry, I lost my place, but go and show yourself to the priest 
and offer for yourself cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. Okay, again, this is the messianic secret in Mark. Don't say anything, but notice what he does. But, that's a great, that's a great little word, right? Mark uses it perfectly here. But, or instead, he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. He would go out to the wilderness now for people to come and to encounter him because he couldn't enter the towns. The leper couldn't keep his mouth shut. When our sins have been purified by Christ, our immediate response should be like the leper. Go and talk freely about Jesus and spread the news. Well, what about the paralytic from Mark chapter 2 that we read a moment ago? Again, verse 11, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out from before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. These few examples of Jesus' authority and his power to heal and to cleanse manifest for us Jesus' authority and power to redeem, to save. The effects that are noticeable here, the outside effects. Right? And Peter's mother-in-law, the fever leaves her. She is well. She gets up. She begins to serve. Those that are sick with various diseases and demon-possessed, those are healed. They physically look better. They physically act better. The leper, he no longer has leprosy. All of these, the paralytic, he is able to stand up for the first time and walk home. All of these effects are microcosms of how Christ saves and heals and cleanses our whole selves. They're examples of what Jesus does to our entire beings. And with each and every example that we've looked at, Christ Jesus is praised and God is glorified. This is what occurs every time Christ heals and purifies one who repents and believes the gospel. Again, to quote the wise woman of Gondor, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And by his healing hands shall the rightful king be known. Jesus came to proclaim the fulfillment of time, the kingdom of God, and repentance and belief in the gospel. And by his authoritative and divine proclamation... Jesus is revealed as the Christ, as the Savior who heals and who purifies us with salvation that is found in him alone. Salvation is not only, and let me stress not only, it is not only about getting back on the right side of God's mercy through a judicial acquittal or penal substitution. It is not only about that. Salvation is also about having your complete and whole person healed and purified by Christ. The same sin that keeps us from a relationship with God and that requires Christ as a mediator is also the same sin that can only be healed and purified by God through Christ Jesus. We need Jesus to save us totally and completely by healing us and by purifying us. Jesus' authority over all, of our, all, over all of our infirmities and our sicknesses and our diseases and our demons and our sins is manifested by his authoritative, salvific, healing, purification of our souls. So this morning as we come to the table, 
and as we partake of the bread and the cup. Give praise to God because of the healing and purifying work of Christ Jesus. And like the former leper, may we go forth from this place this week and talk openly and talk freely and spread the news of what Christ has done for us. To the glory of the Father and to the praise of Jesus the Christ.